This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Botsman, professor and director of graduate studies of history in the Department of History at Yale University. Dr. Botsman is the author of Punishment and Power in the Making of Modern Japan, published by Princeton University Press in 2013. Dr. Botsman, thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. In your research, you've written a lot about first punishment and power in the Tokugawa period going into the Meiji period. And, and now I understand you're working also on issues around slavery and emancipation and especially the outcast communities. So from your perspective, what is the importance of the Meiji Restoration and the place of the Restoration in the Meiji period more broadly in Japanese history? Well, that's a very big question, isn't it? But it's clearly a a critical moment of rupture in many ways. A lot of things change. It is the moment when you get a modern nation state being self-consciously created, and lots of things come along with that. Prisons, obviously, but schools and factories, and perhaps most importantly of all, a, a modern military and all the things that go with that, including, you know, wars of aggression in other parts of Asia and, um, and a modern empire. So in terms of big picture things, it's, I think it's, it's clearly an important moment. Although it's also true that on the other side of it, there's continuities from, obviously there's big continuities from, from the Tokugawa period on into, really into the 20th century. So, you know, it's one of those questions that you can, you can emphasize the, the change or you can emphasize continuity. And I think obviously both are important. And when you're thinking about something like the situation of uh, former outcasts in the early Meiji period, for example, I think you really need to understand what's happening. You really need to pay attention to both the things that are changing and then the things that are at least partly products of earlier structures. One of the things I found most striking in your book was the discussion of this idea of, of rupture, maybe it's something that's actually constructed to serve a purpose. And that purpose being emphasizing the reforms and changes that the Meiji state is able to implement. I mean, I think there's an element of that, but I have to say I'm not that enamored of that kind of argument anymore because it seems to me a kind of cop-out to say it's all a kind of a construct, it's all kind of you know ideologically produced because it's, it's clear that some very important things really do change. I mean, when you have people who are kind of being conscripted into an army, whereas previously they weren't, I feel like, you know, that's a very real change in people's everyday lives. When the way in which taxes are collected changes fundamentally, the fact that kind of systems of land ownership change, the fact that you have schools and then you have compulsory schooling set up. Uh, I mean, you can talk about things like terakoya as kind of precursors to modern institutions. But one of the things that I really did try and take on fairly squarely in, in the book about punishment was this idea that the only way you can think about the Edo period is in terms of the way that it prepared Japan for modernity. And, you know, that is the kind of thinking that feeds into this idea that, oh, actually not much changed with the restoration, that actually things were similar in the past, or it was a kind of smooth transition. And it, it just doesn't make sense to me to think about many aspects of what happens across the 19th century in those terms. So to be a little more concrete in the in the punishment book, I took on this idea that that this institution that forms in the, that's created in the late 18th century in Edo called the Ninsoku Yoseba, the stockade for laborers is the kind of standard English translation. 
So legal historians and historians of punishment in Japan have often talked about that as a kind of proto-prison. And they point to it as evidence that Japan in the Edo period was already moving in the direction of modernity, a kind of Western-style modernity. So if Perry had never showed up, Japan would have ended up with something like a modern prison anyway. And that idea is also tied up with this kind of very modern idea that that freedom is really the center of, of what modernity is about. And so the word that gets used in, in Japanese to talk about the modern prison is juke, you know, like, so punishment, free, freedom punishment, literally. But it means, of course, you know, punishment by deprivation of liberty. And this idea that already in the Edo period, things were moving in that direction is still very entrenched in a lot of the scholarship on this. And I just think that that's such a misleading way to think about it. And that also ties into my questions about the way that the term early modern Japan has become such a commonplace one and uh, one that people use without problematizing it. Because, you know, early modern implies that there's a late modern. And so it implies that the Tokugawa is leading into the Meiji. And to me, if you think about things in that way, what you end up covering up or minimizing is the impact of the imperialist West and its various kind of technologies of power. And so what you end up, I think, when you emphasize too much the kind of continuities from Tokugawa into Meiji, what you end up with is a kind of, I mean, it is a kind of modernization school picture of the natural way that societies develop is the way that societies in Western Europe developed and really Britain. And the fact that Japan followed that same route was just a natural outcome. So there wasn't really much conflict. There wasn't really much disruption. It was just the natural course of things. And again, to me, that really then blinds you to thinking about all of the traumas that are associated with the onset of, of modernity, not just in Japan, but all over the place. And it kind of disconnects the history of Japan from a larger story of modernity globally which really is one of disruption and dispossession and, and new forms of violence. So to me, that's why not ignoring the rupture is really, is really important. But I guess to come back to the earlier point, I mean, I think that there's definitely ways in which in the Meiji period, the Edo period gets represented and constructed and that that shifts over, the time in, in, over time in the Meiji period too. But I wouldn't want to go as far as to say that the idea that the Edo period is somehow different from the Meiji period is something that is just some kind of convenient ideological construction of of the Meiji state, for example. Talking about the deprivation of liberty in the prison system that, you know, as you're saying, maybe wasn't necessarily an antecedent for the Meiji prisons, but uh, nonetheless, this question of the deprivation of liberty, is this the segue into your recent research on slavery and emancipation? Yeah, in some ways, I think that's probably true. So in fact, the, the, the project on emancipation 
really began. So pretty much every year of my career since I started teaching, I've taught a class on the, on the major restoration or on the 19th century transition. And one of the things that I've been struck by is how, I mean, one of the obvious gaps that I think exists in the English language literature is basically the freedom and popular rights movement. And I thought, you know, where else in the non-Western world do you get a major political opposition movement in the 19th century that is really drawing on these ideas, which to many people, even today, are kind of uniquely Western, you know, ideas about freedom and rights and so on. So I thought there was a real opportunity to kind of do some serious work on the freedom and popular rights movement and think about this idea of freedom and how it plays out in in the early Meiji period, partly as a way of basically disabusing our Eurocentric colleagues of this notion that these ideas can never take root outside of the West because they're somehow alien to non-Western peoples. But in the process of working on that, I did become more and more interested in this issue of emancipation. And I became fascinated by this one man named Oe Taku. And Oe uh, seemed like someone who was a little bit too good to be true. And in, in the end, I think that's actually pretty much what I've concluded, that the stories that exist about him and his image is one that is not actually, I mean, that is something that's being constructed, I think. It really is too good to be true. But so he was from Tosa, from Kochi, although he was from one of the most remote parts of, of Kochi, from um, Sukumo which was a kind of garrison town. So he was born into a, a bushy family there. And Sukumo became a place where um, there were a lot of Kinno activists, loyalist activists in the lead up to the restoration. And it was a place also where there was accumulations of merchant capital, mainly to do with the camphor trade. And some of the local merchants in Sukumo basically were helping to fund some of these young loyalist bushy types to kind of travel around, going to all the places that shishi types did go to in that period, including Nagasaki and so on. So Oetaku was one of that group of people from Sukumo. And so there was a kind of Sukumo band, if you like, of these shishi types who go on to become prominent in various walks of life in the in the Meiji period. But Oe, he first makes his mark in public life um, after the restoration because he gets appointed to a low-level position in Kobe. And while he's there, he writes a petition to the central government saying, we should really do something about the situation of the Eta, the outcast people. And that petition that he submits comes to be remembered retrospectively as the thing that leads to the official emancipation of outcasts in 1871. I mean, it's it's not called an emancipation edict at the time, but the sensual haishire, the order that abolishes the derogatory names for outcast people. So again, these horrible terms, eta and hin. So that's his first mark on public life. And then the next year, he is in a kind of slightly higher ranking position in Yokohama. And he, he effectively ends up being acting governor of, of, of Kanagawa. And just as he assumes that position... He gets involved in this case that I've, I've written about in the American Historical Review, the Maria Luz incident. It's a fairly well-known, famous incident where basically a group of Chinese laborers, so-called coolies, who are being taken from South China to Peru to work in the Guano Islands. 
basically the ship gets caught in a storm in the middle of the Pacific and it ends up, it kind of limps its way back across the Pacific and calls at Yokohama. The captain requests permission to weigh anchor and make repairs. And soon afterwards, some of these Chinese men who are being held uh, on board the ship in conditions which are more or less identical to what you would expect in a slave ship in the Middle Passage, start jumping off and swimming to whatever other ship they can find. And it just so happens that the next ship in the harbor is a British naval ship. And the officers on that British ship report what's happening. And eventually there's a trial to investigate, or there's an investigation and then a series of trials. And to make a long story story short, Oyetaku, this same man, serves as judge in this trial, and he famously finds that, indeed, these men are being held in a form of slavery, and he announces that Japan doesn't tolerate slavery, or the export of slaves, at least. And as a result of that, these Chinese men are set free, and in fact, the Japanese government helps repatriate them to China. And meanwhile, the other twist in all of this is that the British lawyer who is retained by the captain of the Peruvian ship, the Maria Luth, makes an argument in the court case saying that, in fact, Japan does allow slavery because the contracts that are binding these Chinese laborers on board the ship are very similar to the contracts that are used to bind women in prostitution in Japan. And so one of the outcomes of that argument being made, I mean, so Oye is able to, with the help of his Western legal advisors, come up with an argument that kind of gets around that objection or that argument that's being made by the lawyer for the defense, for the captain of the ship. But one of the things that results from all of that also is that the Japanese government, which had already been thinking about reforming the legal structures surrounding prostitution, is given kind of further encouragement to really act. So that soon after the Maria Luth trial, there's an emancipation edict for prostitutes issued. And unlike the earlier emancipation edict for outcasts, as it comes to be known, the edict concerning prostitution and prostitutes actually does use the language of freedom and rights. And in the deliberations within the government that lead up to its issuance, it's very clear that people like Inoue Kaoru, who are kind of pushing for this change, are quite conscious of things like Abraham Lincoln's liberation of slaves in the middle of the Civil War in the U.S. So there's a sense, in other words, in which these developments that are playing out in Japan are very much tied to these global shifts. But Oetaku, this man in the middle of it all, seems very interesting because he seems to be responsible in some ways for the emancipation of the outcasts. Then he's responsible for the emancipation of these Chinese laborers who are being held against their will. And then he's also kind of tied up with this emancipation of prostitutes. So he seems like, you know, this great hero for progressive liberal causes in Japan in the early 1870s. So I became very interested in him. But as I mentioned a minute ago, in fact, his story turns out to be much more complex than I had initially thought. And there's basically this image of him as this great liberal hero is something that I think gets constructed in the 20th century when the Japanese government has become quite worried about the possibility that Buraku people will become radicalized and turn to socialist politics. And particularly in the wake of the Russian Revolution, and they have this idea that the communist revolution was spearheaded by Jews, you know, this kind of quite common association between Jews and Bolsheviks. And who are the Jews of Japan? Well, the Burakumin are the Jews of Japan. 
And so there's this fear that if basically uh, this minority group and its concerns are not somehow addressed, that it's going to lead to basically revolutionary troubles for the, for, for the Japanese government. And of course, it's also around the time of the rice riots. And there's a lot of talk at the time of the rice riots that the Burakumin were the people who were kind of responsible for that, although that is probably um, a fabrication. But in any case, this idea that, that emerges that the Burakumin are a problem that need to be addressed or else there's going to be a revolution leads to this new effort in the 20th century, early 20th century to make it clear that from the outset, the Meiji government was trying to help the former outcasts. Whereas in reality, when you go back and look at what was motivating Oe in 1870 to submit this petition, it, it, it seems very clear that it has very little to do with, you know, human rights or kind of con humanitarian concern about the situation of outcast people and really has a lot more to do with the kind of effort to modernize industry and particularly the need to think about more efficient ways to exploit animal life because of the sudden emphasis that comes to be placed on things like beef and leather as important for a modern militarizing state. follow-up questions. The first one has to do with Oe Taku, and maybe not so much about his role in all of this, but him as representative of a link perhaps between the Bakumatsu Shishi activities mm -hmm. and and then the Jiuminkan Udno in the 1870s. Is there a relationship between the Yonaoshi and the Uchikowashi riots of the 1850s and then the kind of the, the peasant side of the people's rights movements, especially after 1878 going into the 1880s, and perhaps even casting forward into the 19-teens, when we have another surge in rice riots carried out mainly by peasant farmers. I don't know that the Juming Kiendo fits in very well in relation to the history of kind of popular uprisings. Because I think the Juminki Undo is so complex in terms of, you know, which groups of people are involved at which points in time. And it seems to me that it's a lot more than a kind of um, just a popular uprising, which I think is one of the things that makes it distinct, because there actually is this kind of new set of ideas that's framing things. And so I, I'm not sure that I would want to make too many direct connections. But I do think that on the other hand, you could make the case, and I've often thought you can kind of Think about the long 19th century in Japan as being framed by the Uchikowashi of the Tenmei period, which I think is a kind of quite important moment in the late Tenmei when, you know, Edo is basically out of control for a period of days because people are rioting. And if you go from that to, say, the Hibiya riots after the Russo-Japanese War, I don't think that the Hibiya riots are the same as the Uchikowashi in, what is it, 1789. But I think that you could definitely write a history of the 19th century in terms of different kinds of popular uprising. And I certainly think that a big part of the story of the, of the Meiji Restoration is one of this kind of growing sense of instability domestically and this kind of sense that society is kind of not under control and not stable. 
And I think one of the ways you can think about the westernization efforts, whether it's prisons or police or schools or military, is precisely you can think about those efforts as a kind of solution or part of a perceived solution to this problem of kind of how do you manage this unruly society? You know, in that regard, of course, the Japanese story is not that unusual. And you can see similar things playing out in a lot of different societies. You mentioned that you've been teaching a Meiji Restoration class every year at Yale. I'm, I'm really curious to hear about how you structure this class and then what are some of the narratives you introduce in that class? I don't think there's anything particularly innovative or original about the way I do it. I mean, I guess in terms of overarching themes, to me, the central theme is this question of imperialism in the modern world, because you can think of the major restoration as a reaction to, to kind of Western imperialism. But then, of course, what you get is the birth of, a, of an imperial state. So I think that raises interesting questions about can you, in fact, have a, mod a successful modern state without it being an empire? How does race fit into all of this? Because, you know, Japan is, you know, the one non-white empire in the late 19th century. So what does that mean? And then, you know, these issues about how does the Edo period past fit with all of that? Most of the weeks are organized around primary sources. And I try to really encourage the students to focus pr mainly on, on primary sources in week-to-week -week discussions. I guess one other thing that I try, since coming to Yale anyway, I've really tried to make a central part of my class is is making links to, to Yale because, I mean, it's actually kind of shock. It's been shocking to me how deep the connections have been. So with the Iwakura mission, everybody knows about Tsudomi Miko being sent overseas at that point, but not as many people know about Yamakawa Sutematsu, who was one of the older girls who went with her, and even fewer know about Nagai Shige. I'm sorry, so Nagai Shige and Yamakawa Sutematsu are the two other girls who get sent with the Iwakura mission to come to the U.S. And... Yamakawa Stematsu comes to New Haven with Nagai Shige. So being able to like introduce those things to the students and why does she come, why does Yamakawa Stematsu come to New Haven? Because her brother Yamakawa Kenjiro is studying at Yale. And Yamakawa Kenjiro is of course the guy who basically he studies physics at Yale. And he goes back to become the first professor of Japanese professor of physics at the University of Tokyo. And then he becomes president of Teidai and then president of Kyodai and president of Kyudai. And then towards the end of his career, he also starts writing these histories of the Boshin Senso from the perspective of Aizu, because he's from Aizu. And he was in the Byakkotai. And basically his writings as Hiraku Shimoda and, and others have shown are really critical to this whole mythology of the Byakkotai. So even at that level, like the first Japanese, he's the first Japanese graduate of Yale College. And he's the guy who basically invents the myth of the Byakkotai and kind of puts Aizu back on the map in terms of uh, being a kind of noble loser in the struggles of the Restoration period. the topic of Yale connections to the Meiji period. I know out at Yale, you're, you're partnering with a couple other institutions to do a kind of Meiji at 150 commemoration series. Can you talk about you know, what, what are some of the thoughts behind this or, or some of the ways you're structuring this commemoration and, and kind of the maybe say the politics of commemoration in general? Yeah, thanks. So, so basically, my colleague Rob Heller at Wake Forest a few years ago said, oh, you know, the 150th anniversary is coming up, we should do some things. And I was like, yeah, sure, Rob, that's a good idea. Basically, I don't think I would have really thought much to thought to do much about this if it hadn't been for Rob's initial suggestion. 
But once I started to think about it and talk about it, especially with colleagues in Japan, I really started to realize that completely separate from this issue of what the Meiji Restoration was about, the issue of what it means to commemorate the anniversary of the Meiji Restoration is a deeply political question. In particular, one of the things that my colleagues in Japan and one of the first people to put me on to this was uh, just a really brilliant scholar named Yokoyama Yuriko, who said, well, have you read about what happened in 1968? And I said, no, what happened in 1968? And she said, well, basically every historian in Japan joined a mass protest against the idea of commemorating the centenary of the Meiji Restoration. When you go back and read the materials, it's really quite remarkable. And basically one of the things that the historians in Japan at the time in 68 show pretty clearly is that the real precedent for having a celebration or a commemoration of this kind or a mass event of this kind was nothing from the Meiji period, but actually from the kind of period of high fascism in Japan in 1940, when the kind of mass celebrations of the 2600th anniversary of the founding, mythical founding of Japan by Emperor Jimbu were held in 1940. And you might think, oh, well, that sounds a little far-fetched. But really, when you start looking at the evidence, it's quite remarkable. And it, even down to things like the person who's put in charge of organizing the 1960 celebrations is a man named Inu Makazumi. And Inu Makazumi was the guy who was in charge of organizing the celebrations in 1940. So the argument that is made by the historians in Japan in 1968 about why this is such a bad idea is that basically they see this as an attempt to obliterate this sense that 1945 was a break. And that there was a kind of new Japanese society, new and better Japanese society being created as a result of post-war reforms. And instead emphasize this sense that, well, Japan was great in the Meiji period and Japan is great now. And they saw this and the arguments they made at the time were, I think, really quite powerful. That really what the kind of celebration of the centenary of the Meiji Restoration was about was the push to revise the post-war constitution, remilitarize, and promote a kind of softer version of, of wartime ultranationalism. And this is relevant, I think, to thinking about the 150th celebrations, because when you start looking at what the Abe government has suggested about why it's important to celebrate Meiji 150, in fact, They're saying many of these same things about the need to celebrate Japan's greatness and kind of focus on the strength of the nation and so on, revive pride in the kind of greatness of the achievements of the Meiji period. And of course, the things that are always admitted, and I don't think this is unique to Japan, but the things that are always admitted in these kinds of nationalistic efforts is any discussion of the kind of negative sides of the past which of course in the case of the Meiji period really does mean the invasion of neighboring countries and the creation of this colonial empire. So there's definitely a kind of willful blindness to the negative aspects of the Meiji period. And I think it's no coincidence that the prime minister who orchestrated the 1968 celebrations was Sato Eisaku, who is of course the grand uncle of Prime Minister Abe, And Abe himself has said that 
he really wants to make sure that he stays in power to the end of 2018 as prime minister because that will ensure that there's a Choshu man or a Yamaguchi Kenjin in the prime ministership at the 150th celebration, as was the case at the centenary in 1968, and was the case at the 50th celebration when Terauchi Masatake, the so-called butcher of Korea, was also prime minister. So there's a lot of, you know, really disturbing things about the effort to promote Meiji 150, a kind of moment of uncritical celebration. And maybe that's the key is that uncritical celebration. You know, we could talk about over fetishizing certain dates, but then dates are also useful moments to pause and kind of remind ourselves of these larger historical trends that you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's true, of course. And I think another thing to note about it, though, is actually that in the official statements about it, both in 1968 and in 2018, there's actually very little interest in talking about the events of the major restoration itself. So what is the focus of the kind of uncritical celebration is this kind of very amorphous idea of Meiji. And really, again, what Meiji means in the minds of the or what they want it to mean when they're kind of orchestrating this uh, effort to to kind of celebrate is national greatness. It's this idea that generally in the Meiji period, Japan achieved something really great and important. And of course, that is, you know, the kind of thing that, that uh, I think Prime Minister Abe wants people in Japan to kind of aspire to now, a kind of national greatness again. And again, maybe there's nothing wrong with wanting people to aspire to something great, but to do that by appealing to a period which, in fact, we know was deeply problematic in lots of different ways without addressing those problems just seems like a very wrong-headed way of going about things. And I, I would really encourage people to go and look at the website of the Abe cabinet um, and look at some of the silly videos and things that they have for promoting the kind of Meiji 150 moment. Because one thing that's really abundantly clear in all of it is that there's no interest in history at all. <laughs> it's really just the kind of image of Japanese achievement. Yeah, pushing the industrialization narrative pretty hard and kind of the successes of Meiji while, while downplaying some of the complex issues and, and the more problematic aspects. Yeah, it, well, you know, there was a reference in Abe's speech to the kind of one of the great things about the early Meiji period was that status distinctions were abolished and all Japanese became free or something. And, you know, again, when you look at the reality of what happened, <laughs> it was a much messier and less um, attractive story than that would suggest. And I think even with industrialization, you know, it's very interesting to me that there's a lot of emphasis on these sites of industrial development, but there's nothing as far as I'm aware, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong, that addresses things like what the conditions of the workers were in these places. I mean, it's kind of monuments again to national achievement and becoming an industrial power but there's no reflection at all on the kind of costs of that. These are the UNESCO sites you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. It turns out there was a, like a very a vociferous opposition to that by the South Korean government. Yeah. Because because they didn't mention the fact that there were exactly. uh, forced migrant laborers. Exactly. There. I mean, I think it really is the case that it's kind of shocking that that the forced labor issue is not addressed. But it's also true that, I mean, the conditions that 
ordinary Japanese workers were working in were also pretty atrocious. And the importance, for example, of prison labor in a lot of the industrialization efforts, where people were literally worked to death, because from the point of view of the government at the time, it was also one less prisoner to feed if people died, and they'd just get another prisoner in. So again, like things are complex, and I don't want to oversimplify things by pushing them too far in the other direction. But it just seems like the, the, there's a kind of, especially for people whose calling it is to study history, we have an obligation to kind of hold politicians and bureaucrats accountable for the way they use history and to make them recognize some of the complexities in all of this. And the shying away from that or the deliberate avoidance of it, I think, is really disappointing. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.